Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we enter this room together with some things in common, a lot of differences, but one of the common realities is that we are a needy people. And it's good to confess together and it's good to sing together that, oh Lord, we need you even every hour we need you. We have a great need, but we have a great God who provides abundantly and for that we're thankful. And so the other common thread in this room is a heart of gratitude that you meet our needs and you meet our fundamental need, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. It's been taken care of. It is finished. The penalty has been paid because of the cross of Christ. God, as we consider Pentecost Sunday today, we're also thankful that you don't leave us alone, but you provide us with your Holy Spirit. As we trust in Christ, we're filled and dwelt with the Holy Spirit so that we could be victorious over sin. We can make progress. We can put sin to death by the Spirit, and not only individually, but corporately because of the Spirit lighting the flame. The church has spread from that one church in Jerusalem now to all the way to Abilene, Texas, and beyond. The Spirit cannot be stopped. So we're grateful for the gift of the Spirit. Father, we're grateful to have Russ and and Sherry with us. We pray that you would bless their time here, not only in Abilene, but also as their time resting, that it would be a time of rest and renewal and just strengthening of convictions and strengthening of the reality of the Lordship of Christ and the summons that all people should submit to him and that they would return renewed, reinvigorated. And we're thankful for the International Mission Board. And we pray that you would strengthen them, strengthen their leaders. May they continually grow in health and may they continually have qualified missionaries ready to go. Pray that you would be at work now, raising up the next one from this congregation. We're grateful for the government, especially in Texas, passing this heartbeat bill. We pray that many lives would be saved because of it. And God, as we turn to your word, would you do what you promised to do? Would you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. We pray this through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our march through Matthew, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the chair, it's page 761. And this morning, really at the heart, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, we have the Lord's Prayer. These may be the single 
set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. It really is a beautiful literary masterpiece. It's only 36-word prayer, but it covers so much. As one person notes, this prayer stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell and in between, in six brief petitions, everything important in life. One of the challenges, though, is very familiar. And so we can lose and miss its significance. And the other thing, it's used in some really odd ways, isn't it? I went to Eula, so we didn't have football. But if you have any experience with middle school or high school football, it might be the strangest way this prayer is used. It's like an incantation for victory. <laughs> and it can become just a bunch of empty phrases, the very thing that Jesus actually warns about right before this, right there in chapter 6, verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up the empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Rather, pray like this. Back in the 80s, there was this chapel service for the bears and the minister asked refrigerator perry remember him they asked the minister asked the fridge to lead them in the lord's prayer and at the time jim mcmahon was the quarterback and he says to the chaplain i'll bet you 50 bucks the fridge doesn't know the lord's prayer and the chaplain thought it was a bit odd to be betting on the lord's prayer but (laughs) he went for it and fridge started Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord in my soul to keep. And Jim McMahon pulls out $50 and said, I didn't think he would know the prayer. (laughs) Jesus is going to tell us here, pray like this. This is a model of how we should pray, not merely what we should pray. If we only repeat this exact prayer, the dangers will do it thoughtlessly and mechanically. But if we thoughtfully and sincerely pray this prayer, it can be transformative because this prayer expresses the priorities of the kingdom. We'll see that these first three petitions focus our eyes up. They're focused on God and his glory. Notice it's your name, your kingdom, your will and then the last three focus on our good our bread and our forgiveness and our deliverance so let's consider together three ways to pray as a child with hope and for help so first we learn to pray as a child look with me again at chapter 6 verse 9 Jesus tells us pray then like this our father in heaven hallowed be your name It starts with our Father. We don't pray to some abstract deity. We first recollect who we are in Christ before we proceed any further in prayer. And we also need to remember, contrary to much popular American theology, not all people are children of God. We were not children of God before we trusted in Christ. In fact, Ephesians 2 says we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But through the gospel, if we trust in Christ, we've been now made children of God. And so no matter what the world, no matter what even our own hearts might tell us, we are children of God if we've trusted Christ. He's our father. Not here, but elsewhere in scripture, God's called Abba, a little bit more endearing term that was often used by small children when speaking to their fathers. And this was a fairly new approach to God. The Jews of Jesus' day, they didn't encourage intimacy with God. They couldn't even say his name. They would substitute Lord for his name, Yahweh. 
In the Old Testament, God's only referred to as a father 14 times and never by an individual. And so the Jews of Jesus' day, they would prefer more exalted titles for God like king of the universe or sovereign Lord, which are no doubt true. But Jesus brings some nearness to God and he teaches us, pray then like this, our father in heaven. When we trust Christ, we receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Significant start to the prayer. Speaking of this little word, Father, Martin Luther said, this is but a little word, and yet, notwithstanding, it comprehends all things. The mouth speaks not, but the affection of the heart speaks after this manner. Although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side, and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from your presence, yet I am your child. And you are my father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of the beloved, our father. Calvin said, by the great sweetness of this name, he frees us from all distrust. And so the fact that this prayer starts this way, it sets the precedent, it establishes the kind of God to whom we're praying. We're speaking with our Father who cares for us and loves us. See what kind of love the Father's given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We're praying to one who knows us and loves us. As I was studying this week, I was struck afresh by the Heidelberg Catechism. We often push to families the New City Catechism. I hope you're using it. If not, Google it or we'll get you one. It's actually based in some parts off the Heidelberg. And I wanted to share. I just thought it was too rich not to share as they walked through the Lord's Prayer. Question 120 asked this, why has Christ commanded us to address God as Father? Here's the answer. To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Our father in heaven. And notice it doesn't doesn't encourage us to pray my father. We pray our father. He's a father. And so we who call upon him, we're brothers and sisters. This prayer is for the community of faith. The local church, a family, brothers and sisters with God as our father. Christianity is a corporate faith through and through. There's a lot of other religions and where God may come through quiet walks in the woods or sitting quietly in the library with a book or rummages around in your own psyche. Christianity is not one of them. Christianity is a communal corporate faith. A matter of life in the church, the body of Christ. So Jesus doesn't call individual, individuals isolated from one another. He calls a church. We're children of God and siblings to each other. He's our father. He's near and he's personal. But he's also in the heavens. Our father who is in heaven, he's transcendent and he's almighty. And we need to have both of these truths about God in mind. Theologians call it the transcendence of God and the eminence of God. He's beyond us. But he draws near to his people. And we've got to keep these two in balance. And at different times in history, they've been imbalanced. And today, I would say they're imbalanced so that we focus on the imminence of God to the neglect of the transcendence of God. God has become too domesticated in our day. He's just a sky fairy instead of the holy creator. Here's how one author puts it. David Wells writes, The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today 
fundamental problem. It's not inadequate technique. It's not insufficient organization or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is filling from us from its true wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, his grace is too ordinary, his judgment is too benign, his gospel is too easy, and his Christ is too common. I think he's right. One of the problems with the church today, one of the reasons for our impotence as a church in America today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon us. God is near, yes, but he's also beyond in the heavens. Heaven is God's space. Earth is ours. He's in the heavens, which of course is a statement of both location and power, right? When we say Joe Biden's in the White House, we mean more than his address. Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist tells us, and he does all that he pleases. This is the God to whom we pray. Look, look back at verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing is that God's name would be hallowed. This is the top of the list. I wonder, is this the top of your prayer list? That God's name would be treasured of all else? The desire that God be honored above all that should be pervasive in our prayers. And the name of God, of course, is more than the combination of the letters G, O, and D. His name stands for who he is. His name is his character. His name is his acts. God's name is God himself as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And so we're to pray that his name would be hallowed. Hallowed is this, this verbal form of the noun holy. It means to set apart, to sanctify, to honor, to treat with the highest respect. Of course, God's name already is holy. So we're not asking that God would, would, his name would be made holy, but that people would recognize and acknowledge its holiness by giving God the respect and reverence he's due. We should revere and honor and consider holy the name of God and therefore God himself. So to pray that God's name would be hallowed is to pray that the name of God would be honored. One translation puts it this way, your name be honored as holy. We pray, may your name be honored. May you be glorified. And of course, to pray this means we're participating, right? This is a participatory prayer. We can hardly pray and ask that God's name would be honored and then turn around and live in a way that profanes his name. So to pray, hallowed be your name, is the same as praying, Lord, make me holy. Help me revere and honor you. Work in me so that others see your glory in and through me. Just like we saw in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 16, that we would have lives that the pagans would see and glorify our Father who's in heaven, 5.16. And so the prayer begins with the glory of God. We are to glorify God in all that we do. The way we study and the way we parent and the way we spend our money and the way we use our time and the way we use our gifts, we serve so that in everything, God would receive the glory in Christ Jesus, 1 Peter 4. The glory of God is the purpose for which the world was created. So it's a fitting introduction to how we should pray, and it sets the tone for the entire prayer. We don't first come asking for bread. We come first asking that God would be honored. Again, I wonder, is this your prayer? Is this your hope? Is this your desire that the name of God would be hallowed? 
Heidelberg question 122 asks this, what's the first petition? The answer is, hallowed be thy name. That is, grant us, first of all, that we may rightly know thee and sanctify, glorify, and praise thee in all thy works in which shine forth thy almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Grant us also that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that thy name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. So we pray as a child to our heavenly father that his name would be honored. Second, we pray with hope. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. We've already seen this theme, right? It's a prominent theme in Matthew. Flip back a couple pages. We first saw it with John the Baptist, chapter 3, verse 2, whose message was this, repent, turn from your sin, and turn to the Lord. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is here. That's why you should reorient your life. And Jesus picks up the very same message in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. And what was his message? Repent. Same as John. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's really important to know this. The kingdom is not something that's holy in the future. Jesus brought the kingdom in his first coming. Now, it's not here fully. It will be. It's already not yet. But it is here now. Jesus says it's at hand's. What he means is God's now taking control. It's time for God to become king here and now at last. As he always promised, God was coming to liberate his people from bondage. It's the arrival of God's sovereign, saving, heavenly rule on earth. The kingdom of heaven is not a message that's only future. The kingdom of heaven is not life after death. Praise God, that's true. That's not what is meant here. The kingdom is not about people going to heaven. The kingdom is about the rule of heaven coming to earth. It's not an escape from the created world. It's the redemption of the created worlds. That's why he comes. So Jesus here, this Jewish king, this Messiah, he comes with this message and he reconstitutes Israel around himself, creates a blood-bought, forgiven, countercultural community of allegiance to himself. God has become king through Jesus, and here we are. His people are to put that rule into effect. And the first thing we do is we pray for it. Your kingdom come. May your rule expand on this earth. How's God's rule expand? Well, God's rule is spread as people bow in submission to him. God is ruling. God is reigning when people deny themselves and live for the Lord. So to ask that God's kingdom would come on earth is to ask God to keep saving and sanctifying people. The kingdom spreads as people follow the king. And the whole sermon is about the ethics of the kingdom. This is what it looks like when God becomes king. Jesus helps us understand what he means with the very next line. What does it mean for the kingdom to come? He prays your kingdom come, your will be done. God's kingdom coming is his will being done on earth. The kingdom comes when the people of God do his will, when they live under Christ as king, when they submit to his lordship. Right here in this context, in other words, as they live out the Sermon on the Mount and help others do the same. The kingdom spreads. God's will is done as people submit to the rule of the king. And here's something I don't think the church gets often enough. This is a prayer God intends to answer. In this age, 
God's will will be done. It will actually be carried out on earth. Jesus is at the right hand of God as we speak. He has all authority. He is presently reigning. And so we're praying, God, would the kingdom come on earth as in heaven, not in heaven as in heaven. And so we should be praying that our lives and our realm and our circles, that we can do what we can to make earth increasingly become like life in heaven. And we do our part. Make disciples, make babies, make culture, send missionaries, start schools, start businesses, and show the world what it looks like to live underneath the rule of King Jesus. It's not just waiting. All too often that's what we've done. We'll just wait. No, it's working. But at the end of the day, it's his work. He's got to do it. Francis Schaeffer used to say, we are not building God's kingdom. He is building his kingdom. We are praying for the privilege of being involved. And so if we're praying your will be done, we need to do all we can to know that will, right? What is his will? Well, his word shows us his will. We need to do all we can to help do that will, help others do that will, and with the help of the Spirit, us to do that will. Heidelberg Catechism, question 123. What's the second petition? The answer, thy kingdom come. That is, so rule us by thy word and spirit that more and more we submit to thee. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil. Every power that raises itself against thee and every conspiracy against thy holy word. Do all this until the fullness of thy kingdom comes wherein thou shalt be all in all. But isn't he really just asking the same thing three different ways? It's really one request, isn't it? That his name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would become, that his will would be done. And so we pray as children. And second, we pray with hope. And third, we pray for help. Look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now and only now we turn to our needs, which are many, right? We're very needy and weak people. Someone has referred to prayer as weakness, leaning on omnipotence, all power. So first we focus on God and his name and his kingdom and his will. And then and only then do we turn to our needs, the necessities of life, the forgiveness of sin, deliverance from temptation. We turn to our needs for provision and pardon and protection. We pray first for his presence and then for his provision. We don't go to God like some genie just asking things from him. But at the same time, it'd be a great mistake to think that God is so high and lofty that he doesn't care about the small things. He does. He's our father. Cares for the details of our lives. And so we ask God, give us our daily bread. You know, lots of early church fathers thought that this was too ordinary. This was too earthy to mean actual food. So this had to mean like communion the Lord's Supper, and others thought it was, it was the word of God. You know, man doesn't live by bread alone, by every word. And so, no, this isn't food. This is scripture. Well, that's more from the Greek philosophers than it is the prophets and the apostles. God cares about our physical needs. I think, along with Luther, that this bread refers to all we need in the physical realm. But the word need is crucial here in our context. Need, not greed. I love the way Proverbs 30 puts it. Give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Of course, we in the West, by God's grace, we think this is something that we take for granted. We can tend to think it's redundant to ask for food, but it's not so with many in the world today. It's often helpful to remember we're not the only ones in the world. 
And in many places, this is a precious and urgent petition. People who live from hand to mouth. And in Jesus' day, workers, they'd often be paid for work each day. And it was often very low. And of course, in an agrarian society, one crop failure could spell major disaster. We can be grateful that times aren't so precarious today. But if we're not focused on him, this abundance can lead to ingratitude. That's why we pray before meals, right? I hope you pray before meals. It's not to bless the food, really. Really, the food's already blessed. But we're thanking God for providing. And he has provided abundantly for us, even when we're not asking for it. We have lots of food and even good food. I often like to remind us there are a few things that God's given us that have no utilitarian function. One of those is taste buds. You know, God didn't have to do that. Food has a purpose. God gifted us with taste buds. It's one of my favorite ways to defend the faith. Queso exists. Therefore, God exists. Your argument is invalid. <laughs> Heidelberg Catechism, question 125. What's the fourth petition? The answer, give us this day our daily bread. That is, provide us with all our bodily needs so that we may acknowledge that thou art the only fountain of all good and that our care and labor and also thy gifts cannot do us any good without thy blessing. Grant, therefore, that we may withdraw our trust from all creatures and place it only in thee. Provision and then pardon. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Debt here refers to our sin. And once we see the enormity of our sin, the people who've sinned against us should seem trifling. If we have an elevated view of the sins of others, we've probably minimized our own. We're always first sinner, second sinned against. Jesus unpacks that in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. This doesn't mean that our forgiveness of others earns forgiveness, but it does mean that God forgives only those who have faith in our repentance. And one of the main expressions of true faith is a heart of forgiveness because being forgiven changes us. It transforms us, transforms the heart, which expresses itself in a willingness to forgive others. Forgiven people forgive people. And there's no forgiveness for the person who refuses to forgive. This is the clear teaching here. It's a gospel issue. Flip over to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells us a story emphasizing this matter. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Right after Peter had asked, and he said, you should forgive seven times, 77 times. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's about 200,000 years worth of labor. He's not paying this back. Verse 25, and since he could not pay his master, could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debts. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. It's about a hundred days worth of labor. He owed 200,000 years worth of labor. This fellow owes him about 100 days worth of labor. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place and then his master summoned him and said to him you wicked servant I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts See, when we see the enormity of our own sin, the sin of others become small. Our own sin against God is 200,000 years worth of labor and others' sins against us, it's a measly 100 days. So if we hold grudges, we don't really get the gospel. No one is quicker to give grace than the person who knows how bad they need it themselves. It's really hard to stand over people when you're on your knees as a sinner before a holy God verse 13 613 final petition and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil there's a footnote here that says the evil one I think that's probably what Jesus means here is the evil one we're dependent upon God for physical and spiritual sustenance I think it's the evil one because he's the one who tempts us to sin. God will test us for our good, Hebrews, but he never tempts us for our downfall. That's the devil's game. And so we need to pray for help. You know, as we become Christians and as we grow in Christian maturity, we often think that as we grow, the power of temptation will be diminished. Those of you who's walked with the Lord for a while know that's not true, is it? Sometimes the opposite is the case. Because as we begin to resemble Jesus more and more, and that's the goal of life, to be conformed to him, we become noticeable to the enemy. The target on our back becomes enlarged. And so the struggle with temptation will not end until the resurrection or until the Lord comes or until we die. There will be a fight. And so we need to pray, God, would you help us overcome temptation? And we need to pray it the, the entirety of our lives. So this is how we are to pray, church. Again, I wonder... Does your prayer life look like this structurally? Are you starting with him? One of the things we often push, ACTS, most of you know it, Acts. The order is important. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, then supplication. Asking things from him. We pray like this. This is our model. We pray as a child of the king. Tim Keller said, the only person who dares wake up a king at three in the morning for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. 
Jesus teaches us to start our prayer reminding ourselves who he is and then who we are in him, focused on God first and foremost, his name and his will and his kingdom. And so we start with God and we have our vision reframed and clarified by his greatness and his goodness and his glory. And then we turn to our needs and the needs of others. And so let me encourage you, don't neglect this prayer. Use this prayer, pray this prayer, reflect on this prayer, meditate on this prayer, adapt it and expand it, learn from it. As Calvin said, no one will really learn to pray aright whose lips and heart are not schooled by the heavenly teacher. Jesus says, pray then like this. And so let this prayer work itself down deep into your bones. Let it reorder your desires. Let it form our heart and shape it to long for God's name to be held in highest honor and yearn for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and move us to work to that end. You know, a lot of Baptist churches don't recite this prayer very often. A lot of more liturgical churches will recite it every week can be danger there, but I do think we need to start to corporately confess this prayer together more often. So let's do that now as we close.